If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 4 as we continue our study. As you're turning there, let me just read this to you this morning. When Anne Graham Lotz and her husband, Denny, attend football games at his alma mater, the University of North Carolina, thousands of people cram into the parking lots, and she can't see where she's going. However, her husband, a head taller at six foot seven inches, can look over the crowd, so he takes her hand and leads them to their seats. She says, the way I get from the car to my seat is just by holding his hand and following him closely through the, through the crowd. She follows the same procedure with the Lord. I, tr- I just try to faithfully follow the Lord step by step and day by day, she says, <clears throat> 10 years from now. I just want to look back and know, to the best of my ability, I have been obedient to God's call on my life. She just wants to be obedient, right? She wants to follow the Lord so that she can experience these blessings. And she experienced the blessings of making it to their seats at the University of North Carolina by following the lead of her husband. Well, sometimes um, I didn't always obey my parents. I know that comes as a shock to most of you. When I was growing up, I was, they didn't call it ADD or ADHD back then. They, they said you were hyperactive. That was me. And anyhow, my parents used other methods other than medication to, to help me with that. And it worked. And it worked. I don't remember how old I was, but I, I was a child at the time. My mom was shopping in some department store. I don't remember the department store. And I was busy being a boy. That's what I was doing. <clears throat> I don't remember really how, how it happened, but I, I'm sure I, w- I was not being careful. And uh, long story short, I fell on one of the glass edges of an end cap. They used to have those. And it broke, cutting, cutting my rear end. I got a pretty bad cut on my backside. <clears throat> and so I probably wasn't obeying my mom when it happened. I was pretty young, so I don't remember all the details of that story. I do remember the details of this one, and I was probably a little bit older, and my brother and I were running in the fellowship hall at church and sliding on our knees, you know, across the floor, having a great old time, and I slid uh, into one of the old wooden chairs and hit my forehead on a nail that was sticking out and split my head open, and I got the privilege of several stitches as a result, and my parents had already told my brother and, and I countless times not to run in the church. Now I had a good reason why you shouldn't do that, right? I still have a scar. You can look at it when you're greeting me as you leave this morning. <laughs> Don't stare too long. It, you might not be able to see it because of the wrinkles in my forehead anymore, but uh, anyhow. <clears throat> so there are consequences for disobedience, right? I experienced some of those. I had a cut on my rear end. I had a cut on my forehead. And I've also experienced the blessing of obedience, When I'm obedient, then there's blessings that are a result of that. So how about us? Have there been times when we've suffered the consequences of disobedience? I want you to take time to think about that, maybe in your own life. When was there a time when I was disobedient, I had to suffer the consequences of that disobedience? But I also, I don't want you to just stay there. I want you to think about the blessings that we've enjoyed because we've been obedient. So do that in your life as well. Take a moment to just reflect on, I've been obedient. And I, these are the blessings that, were, that came as a result of that. <clears throat> I 
So as we look at, into the rest of chapter 4 today, we see that Moses' excuses were done. We, as we saw last week, God said, now go. He's like, no more. He left the mountain of God and he returned to Midian. He was going to have to obey the Lord so God's plan could be accomplished. Um, his wife, brother, the Israelites, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh were also going to have to choose to either obey or disobey the Lord. They had a choice. <clears throat> there would be consequences for not obeying, and there would be blessings for obeying. And all of the individuals uh, in this uh, uh, narrative today, we are going to learn uh, what they learned, that obedience to God is essential. And so as we just let that big idea sink in today, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you today. And we see throughout this passage, obedience after obedience after obedience. And the forewarning of disobedience. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray that you would guide and direct us by your spirit. As he fills each heart and mind right now. Would we be attentive to your word? Would we listen to your voice through your servant today? Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I'm not supposed to say, that you would shut my mouth. And if there are things that I need to say, that I would be bold for you. And so we just commit our time together as we study your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see through this uh, group of verses, <clears throat> this whole section, uh, that there was obedience in five ways. And that's our five points today. You're like, oh my goodness, five points. It's okay. We're going to be just fine. Obedience to a custom, to a command, to a covenant, to a call, and to a commitment or a promise. And so look at verse 18, if you would, because this is obedience to a custom. And so as we look at verse 18, God's word tells us this. Then Moses went back to Yithro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Yithro said, go, and I wish you well. And so Moses went back to Midian, didn't he? And goes from the mountain of God, so he head east, back to Midian, and uh, uh, this ends the burning bush narrative in the region of Horeb, which we call Mount Sinai as well. So Yithro was still living in Midian, so Moses took the flock and he headed east again. And he, asked, he has this request of his father-in-law um, for permission to return to Egypt to see if any of his people, and that means the Israelites, were still alive. Now, we're not told if Moses shared his divine encounter with his father-in-law. He just simply says, I, can I have permission to go back to Egypt. Moses was 80 years old at this point, but he still sought permission to leave. I think that's important, don't you? He still honored his father-in-law, even though he's 80 years old, right? We're to honor our father and mother. Scripture talks about that. And so he's honoring his father this way. Yithro had given him employment as a shepherd for 40 years. Yithro had given his daughter Sipporah to him as a wife. And so Moses was obedient to the custom of the day, and he sought permission to return to his people. <clears throat> now, things were different with Jacob, if you remember, when we studied in Genesis chapter 31, and his father-in-law, Laban. Laban had given Jacob a job as a shepherd. That sounds familiar. 
Laban had given his two daughters, Leah and Rachel, to Jacob as his wives. Hmm, similar theme here. But if you remember from Genesis 31, Jacob gathered up his wives, children, flocks, and herds, and left Laban's service while Laban was far away shearing his sheep. Now, he was being obedient to God because God had told him it's time to go back. But when Laban found out, he pursued Jacob, and then he confronts him, as we see in Genesis chapter 31, verses 26 to 28. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. So he didn't live up to the customs of the day. He wasn't obedient to the customs of that day to ask for permission to be obedient to God. And we see that things were different with how Moses handled his departure. And because of that, he received some blessings, right? With obedience comes blessings. So Yithro tells Moses to go and he wishes him well. In fact, Yithro uh, uses an Eastern idiom. He says, go with peace. And in the Hebrew, it's shalom. That's what he's saying to Moses. Mind you, he's a Midianite. He's not a an Israelite, but he's using that shalom. Go with peace. So Moses was obedient to God and the custom of his day by seeking permission from his father-in-law to leave Midian and return to Egypt. So you see, obedience to God is essential. Now, what we see next is obedience to a command in verses 19 to 23. Look at those verses with me if you would. Now, the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you were dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. See some consequences there, don't we? We see the Lord's command, first of all. After Yithro gave Moses his blessing, he began making preparations to return to Egypt. And while he's preparing to leave, the Lord spoke to him again while he was in Midian. So not there at the mountain of God, but here in Midian. And the Lord reassured him that it was safe to return to Egypt because all the men that wanted to kill him were dead. So the men that the Lord was talking about were probably the Pharaoh that was in power when Moses killed the Egyptian, as we saw in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and perhaps any of the relatives who would have had the legal right to pursue justice against Moses. So God's like, they're all gone. It's safe to go back. And so after being reassured by the Lord, Moses obeyed. Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and began his journey back to Egypt. Now we learned in Exodus chapter 2, verse 22, that Moses and his wife had a son named Gerashom. Now we learned that he had at least one more son, or one other son, because of the use of the plural sons. The second son's birth is not mentioned or recorded in Scripture, but his name is given in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. It's Eleazar, which means God is help. So Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. Moses no longer had any objections or excuses. He just obeyed. And you see, obedience to God is essential. 
the Lord not only reassured Moses that it was safe to return to Egypt, but he also gave him further instructions when he arrived in Egypt. <clears throat> and here's the Lord's instructions. I have given you power to perform some wonders. He reminds them that. He said the three that are mentioned earlier in chapter 4 are the staff that turns into a snake and back into a staff, a leprous hand that is restored uh, to a, uh, a healed hand, and then water into blood. The Lord had given Moses power to do those three to prove to the Israelites that God had appeared to him and sent him to deliver them. But he has to make sure to perform them now before Pharaoh as well. We know that Pharaoh sees two of the three, the staff turning, that's turned into a snake and back into a staff, and he sees water turn to blood. Now, it's not mentioned that Moses uses the leprous hand uh, restored uh, wonder with Pharaoh. Perhaps he did, we don't know. It's not mentioned in those plagues. Pharaoh experiences even more wonders than just the two mentioned, as we'll see in chapters 7 to 11, uh, as we continue our study through the book of Exodus. It's the ten plagues. And these wonders would not phase Pharaoh because God's sovereign hand was at work. And so we see the sovereignty of God here as he's forewarning or telling Moses what's going to happen. The Lord tells him that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the Israelites go. And so what we're going to see as we go through the plagues is that there's times where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and there's other times where Pharaoh just hardens his own heart. But we have to understand what the Lord is saying here. God is aware of how Pharaoh is going to react to being told to release the Israelites. It will not be favorable. And what we see from <clears throat> Alexander's commentaries, he says this, Whereas the English concept of a hard heart implies a lack of compassion, a strengthened heart in the Hebrew conveys a sense of determination or resolve. So in this context, the concept of being hard-hearted does not mean cruel, but rather indicates an unwillingness to change one's will, which may be interpreted either positively or being as being determined or resolute, or negatively as being obstinate or stubborn. So it's not that he was going to be uncompassionate. He just didn't want to change his will. He didn't really want to let them go. This is his labor force, right? And so we see some attributes of God here that I think are important. We see that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's telling uh, uh, Moses ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. And then he's eternal because he knows the beginning from the end. He says, this has to happen for a reason because I, I need to show uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians the next thing, or one, another thing, well, I should say two things. Two more attributes that he's sovereign, he has the right to rule, and he rules rightly, and then he's all-powerful. Meridian, his commentary, says, For now, just notice that God, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, is able to fully showcase his power over the enemies of his people. That was the point. Egypt and Pharaoh, the Egyptians and, and Pharaoh, they needed to understand that the, the, the idols that they worshipped, the gods that they worshipped, were nothing, insignificant compared to our true and living God, who is omniscient, eternal, sovereign, and omnipotent. We can rejoice in the fact that God's attributes have never changed. He is still all-knowing, eternal, sovereign, and all-powerful. Aren't you grateful for that today? I know I am. And so we see God... 
or I should say, since God is uh, all of those things and much more, he's able to forewarn Moses about what was going to happen to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, Moses was to share this message from the Lord. He said, the, he said tell him that Israel is my firstborn son. The status of firstborn son in the ancient world was very important. They uh, were given special favor in the family. They received a double portion of the father's inheritance when he passed. They were also responsible to lead the family when the father died. And then they, quote unquote, served their father until they were given leadership of the family. Now, ends in his commentary says Israel is not simply one nation among others. Rather, Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel has a privileged status among the nations. And guess what, folks? That hasn't changed since biblical times. This privileged status has not disappeared. It's not gone away. They are still God's chosen people, even today. And so anti-Semitism in our culture makes no sense apart from the fact that Israel still holds this privileged status with the Lord. That's what makes people upset. Satan is still trying to hurt and eliminate the Jews because they are God's chosen people. Radical Islam's push to kill all Jews and Christians is motivated by their desire to usher in the coming of their Messiah. That has to happen before their Messiah will come. All Christians and all Jews must be killed. The infidel. Hatred for God and an unwillingness to submit to his authority has not changed from generation to generation. It's still there. And every one of us knows that God exists and requires obedience to his commands and submission to his plan for salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. But when we kick against that, when we rebel against that, we will go after anybody that God says is favored. Christians and Jews. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Satan's doing. Our battle's not with other human beings. It's with Satan and his minions. No group or country will be able to eliminate the Jews and Jerusalem because they are God's firstborn son with a privileged status. Listen to this from Zechariah. This is talking about the end times. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. This should give us hope today. That's what I want to share with you. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. They're going to get drunk. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move, move it will injure themselves. Isn't that a great word? For what's going on in our culture right now. The tribes of Israel are featured in the end times with 12,000 Israelites from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, equaling 144,000 Christ followers. They're going to be converted to Christianity as Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, and chapter 14, verses 1 to 5 tells us. So rest assured that what's happening in Israel right now will not thwart God's plan and purposes. We can trust him, and we don't have to be anxious or afraid. Israel's not going anywhere. 
Jerusalem's not going anywhere. And the forces that are coming against them right now are simply going to hurt themselves. And so the Lord wanted the Israelites to be released so they could worship him. The NIV translates the Hebrew word uh, avad as worship, but most other modern translations have it correctly translated as serve. He says, let my people go so that they can serve me. That's important. Stuart in his commentary says, the Israelites had been serving Pharaoh. Now God told Pharaoh that the Israelites were going to serve him. Their liberation came not in being freed from having to work, um, but in being freed from working for the wrong master. And this is important. I want to caution us today about the modern liberation theology that's being taught because they're teaching that the Bible needs to be read from the perspective of the oppressed. I would counter that idea by saying that we need to read the Bible from the perspective of Jesus because he's the central theme of the entire Bible. The Bible outlines God's redemption plan from Genesis to Revelation. It's the gospel. It's the good news. We are certainly commanded in the Old and New Testaments to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. But we uh, have to understand that liberating certain groups is not just for liberation's sake. We're not just liberating. That's not what was happening here. In fact, this passage of Scripture does not speak to liberation theology at all. The book of Exodus outlines God's plan to rescue the Israelites from slavery so they can serve him. We still have a master, but it has to be the right master. And so the gospel frees us from slavery to sin so we can serve the Lord as our master and savior. Isn't that good news today? I can't think of a better master to serve, right? He's not going to mistreat us. He's not going to do things that are, aren't for our good. What an incredible master that we serve. So get rid of the service to sin. Let that go. I think it's Paul that talks about, you know, that we are dead to sin. We don't have to, we don't have to live in that realm anymore. We've been made alive in Christ. We don't want to live that way, though, do we? We don't live in that realm. We still want to be caught up over here and slavery to sin. So there would be consequences for not obeying the Lord. And he says here, I will kill your firstborn son. Interesting, isn't it? He says, Israel is my firstborn son, let him go. And if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. The Lord allowed Moses to see the end game. The killing of every firstborn son in Egypt would be the tenth and final plague. And this plague is the one that broke through Pharaoh's hard heart, right? God used Moses to forewarn Pharaoh and the Egyptians about the consequences of not obeying him. You see, because obedience to God is essential. Moses was obedient to the Lord's command to go and then to share his, this, his message, the Lord's message with Pharaoh. But we also see obedience, uh, well, initially disobedience, but then obedience in a covenant. Look at verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And so we see this obedience eventually to a covenant. 
In a short number of verses, Moses went from the mountain of God to Midian and now to a lodging place on the way back to Egypt. We're not told where this lodging place was, but we can assume it was somewhere between Midian and the mountain of God. Because in verse 27, we see that Aaron met Moses at the mountain of God on his way back to Egypt. So we see some consequences of disobedience here. Most translations do not use Moses' name in verses 24 and 25. If you have an NIV like I do this morning, they put Moses' name in brackets with a footnote. Most translations just use the pronoun him instead of using Moses' name. In the Hebrew, the pronoun's not separate, but combined with the verb. And the... So this has created all kinds of ambiguity about who is being referenced here. Some scholars believe that Moses is in danger of being killed. Other scholars believe that Gerashom, their son, uh, his firstborn son is the one who would, would be killed. Figuring out which person is in danger is not the central concern here. Don't get caught up in that. It doesn't really matter. We know that because of disobedience to the circumcision command given to Abraham someone is in danger of losing their life. There will be consequences for disobedience. Zipporah recognized what was happening and she took action. She circumcised her son. It was probably Gerashom, her firstborn, but again, we're not given the name. Zipporah would have been familiar with the circumcision rite, especially as the daughter of a Midianite priest. And as Stuart says, many people groups in the ancient world practiced circumcision, including the Midianites, It was hardly unknown outside the Israelite circles. So why did Zipporah perform the circumcision and not Moses? There's a lot of ambiguity about this, too, in in the commentaries. Most of the answers surrounding this question are more speculation or educated guesses. We just don't really know. Here's Here's one. If Moses was the one who was going to be killed, perhaps the Lord inflicted him with some illness or seizure that made it nearly impossible for him to perform the rite. We just don't know. We simply aren't given the information in this text. So Zipporah does it, and she's touching the feet with the foreskin. Now, feet is one of several Hebrew euphemisms for genitals. Also, it can include hand, knee, or stones. So, it's more likely that Zipporah touched or threw, as, other, uh, as, it's other, as it's translated other ways, the foreskin at Moses' genitals, which would make sense when talking about the rite of circumcision. This was his role. Should have been his role. Once again, most translations use the pronoun him instead of Moses' name here. I believe it was probably Moses who got touched or had the foreskin thrown at him because it was his responsibility as the spiritual leader of the household to make sure that it was done. It would not make sense to touch the genitals with the foreskin of the person who just had it removed. And certainly, you wouldn't throw it at them. You'd be right there. But we see Zipporah's statement. Her statement about someone being a bridegroom of blood to her leads me to believe that she's talking about Moses, her husband. She is, or he is, her bridegroom. And it would make no sense for her to call her son a bridegroom of blood to her. And because of Zipporah's actions, God relented. God let him, probably Moses, alone. So you see, obedience to God is essential. 
Our first principle is this today. God often relents if people repent. That's from Stuart's commentary. We see that God did not kill either Moses or his son, but let them alone. Zipporah's quick action appeased God's wrath. If we look back into Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, we see this covenant um, that was to be obeyed. Whoops, on the wrong page. There we go. This will be better. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. The covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there was the original covenant. Moses had broken that covenant, and God says there's going to be consequences for your disobedience. But he had a great wife, didn't he? Took care of that situation. Kyle and Dillage say Moses had been guilty of a capital crime which God could not pass over in the case of one whom he had chosen to be his messenger to establish his covenant with Israel. And McKay says that at stake that night was Moses' fitness to be the Lord's representative. Now, we see throughout Scripture God's grace and mercy and relenting when his people repent, and the same is true for us, right? There are always consequences for our decisions. When we choose to do certain things, there can be physical consequences for that decision. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, illicit sex, there are consequences for those and consequences for so much more. Speeding or driving recklessly could result in an accident that injures, disables, or kills you or someone else. There's consequences for our disobedience. Disobeying God's commands, statutes, and instructions in His Word can result in His discipline of us as His children. So the question I want to ask you today is, do you feel like the Lord is disciplining you right now? Is there any unconfessed sin in your life, whether known, unknown, intentional, or unintentional? Are you disobeying one of His commands or covenants? Is there a habitual sin that you're struggling with? The Holy Spirit that lives within each follower of Jesus Christ convicts us of sin. We see that in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 8. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Moitier says, this is why disobedience is such a serious matter. It is acting as if we have, ha- if it's acting as if we had no need of God, His grace, and His pledges. In other words, it's nothing short of a sort of enacted atheism. We're just saying to God, I don't, I don't think I really need you. That's what our disobedience is. Daniel Henderson has said this. Um, 
my prayerlessness is my um, declaration of independence from God. It's like when we're not praying and crying out to God, we're basically saying to him, I, I don't really need you. It's my declaration of independence from you. I'm okay without you. So maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's to confess my sin to the Lord and turn from it so he will relent from disciplining me. I hope you're ready to take that step today. We are God's ambassadors, so we need to make sure that we are fit to be his messenger to the world. Zipporah's obedience to God's covenant was essential to saving her husband or son's life. And you see, obedience to God's covenant is essential for us also. As we've seen, Moses and Zipporah were obedient to the Lord, and Aaron would be also. And I want to give you a quick note here from Stuart's commentary. He says, since from this point on in the narrative, neither Zipporah nor Moses' sons are mentioned until they're reuniting in chapter 18, verses 2 to 6, it is likely that they did not travel further than this camping place, and after Gerashom had healed, they returned to Midian. We don't know. They're just not mentioned again. The next obedience that we see, the fourth one, is to a call. Look at verses 27 to 28. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him, had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. <clears throat> and so we see that Aaron received a call from the Lord to leave Egypt and go into the desert to meet Moses. We're not told if the Lord gave Aaron any specific directions or just a general di direction. Just go to the desert. Our second principle is this, God directs our steps. That's what he was doing with Aaron. However the Lord did it, he directed Aaron's steps so he could be reunited with his brother Moses. The Lord does the same thing for us. He directs our steps when he calls us to do something. He will not call us and then leave us wondering where we're supposed to go. He'll direct our steps. So what has God called you to do? How is he directing your steps right now to be obedient to that call? Maybe you're ready to take the second next step today, and that's to be obedient to God's calling and follow him as he directs my steps. We know that Aaron found Moses at the mountain of God. That's where Moses had the burning bush experience. Moses knew from his time at the burning bush that Aaron had, was already on his way to meet him. And then Moses shared everything with Aaron. He told him everything the Lord had said. He also showed him or told him about the miraculous signs the Lord had commanded him to perform. <clears throat> and Moses had moved from a lodging place on the way to the mountain of God to meet Aaron, and together they returned to Egypt. And finally, we see that there's obedience to a command or a promise in verses 29 to 31. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. So Moses and Aaron are back in Egypt at this point. Moses has been busy. He's been at the mountain of God, and he's been back to Midian, and he's been to a lodging place, and then back to the mountain of God, and now to Egypt. Whew. I'm tired in just these verses. I don't know about you. And so they meet with the elders, and Moses and Aaron obediently gathered all the elders of the Israelites together, 
so they can encourage them with the Lord's message. And you see, obedience to God is essential. Aaron's role as Moses' mouthpiece has begun. It appears as though Aaron's call from the Lord there at the mountain of God also included the ability to perform the miraculous signs that Moses had practiced at the mountain of God. And the message from the Lord and the miraculous signs convinced the Israelite leaders, and they believed. But this is exactly what the Lord had told Moses in Exodus 3.18. He said, they're going to believe. They'll believe you. And they did. This word had come true. The Lord was aware of everything that was happening to them, and he was responding to their cries for help. And so... conversion of the Israelites here is evidenced through their worship. The Israelites are excited that the Lord is concerned about them. Stuart in his commentary says in verse 31, describes the Israelites' conversion to faith in Yahweh, evidenced by the posture of bowing before God, not Moses, as the people signed that they believed in and accepted the demands of his words and promises for them. Our third principle today is this, that our proper response to God's concern for us is worship. Have you experienced God's concern for you? Has he responded to your cries for help? Have you taken time to worship him? Maybe you're ready to take this third next step today, and it's to bow down and worship the Lord for answering my prayers and coming to my rescue. You know, as we review, are you ready to confess your sin to the Lord and turn from it so he will relent from disciplining you? Are you ready to be obedient to God's calling and follow him as he directs your steps? Are you ready to bow down and worship the Lord for answering your prayers and coming to your rescue? As a body of believers, we need to do those same things. We need to confess our sins so that he'll relent from disciplining us. We need to be obedient to his calling as body of believers and follow him as he directs our steps. And we need to bow down and worship the Lord for answering our prayers and coming to our rescue. As we close today, I want you to sing a little chorus with me that I learned a long time ago. The chorus is, obedience is the very best way. So if you know it, would you sing it with me? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key, do it immediately, the joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Spell it out, O. B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe.